People often ask me, I'm a, uh, an airline pilot for United Airlines, and people often ask me what was the scariest time you know, you've ever had flying, and, and honestly the scariest time I ever had flying was actually flying a glider. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots Podcast. My name is Chuck. I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 72. Thank you for joining us. We will be joining our guest pilot momentarily, but first, our Patreon pilot of the week, Yoni Naimi. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Our biggest contributor since our last episode, we greatly appreciate your support and thank you to our other Patreon pilots who continue to support the podcast and make it possible for us to keep bringing you great soaring content. If you'd like to be our next Patreon pilot, just go to patreon.com slash soaring the sky or you can click the link in the show notes. You can also go to our website for that. Also, a big thank you to each and every one of you for putting us in the top 10 of the podcast charts in the aviation category in several countries, as well as putting us on the charts in 35 countries. We recently celebrated over 50,000 downloads. I, I can't believe it. You continue to amaze us with your continued support. Lots of good stuff on the way, and Michelle has some of that info for you now. Hey, it's Michelle. We're giving away a Condor keypad. The keypad brings most of the common commands to your fingertips and makes your simulator soaring controls easier to find. Paul Remdy from Cumulus Soaring is making this giveaway possible. To enter to win, send your best soaring pick or short video to chuck at soaringthesky.com and we will post it on Instagram. When you see it, share it, comment, and tag us. We will be picking a winner randomly on the podcast. If you're the winner and you don't fly Condor, Cumulus Soaring will be giving you a $15 credit towards their great soaring products. So get us those great picks and have fun! This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Rob Cluxton started soaring in 1990 at the age of 19 at Caesar Creek Soaring Club in Waynesville, Ohio, while studying aviation at The Ohio State University. After a few years of towing and instructing, the cross-country race bug bit him, and since he has flown over 20 types, owned or shared six different gliders, and had too numerous to count adventures through soaring, he's currently a 777 pilot for United Airlines and resides in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and today shares his adventure on Soaring the Sky. Rob Cluxton, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Glad to have you today. How are you? Thank you. Uh, glad to be here. So where are you flying out of? Currently, I'm flying... Uh flying primarily out of the uh, Cumberland, Maryland Airport, uh, CBE, uh, which is technically located in uh, Wiley Post, West Virginia. It's a paved airport, two paved runways, and a small glider operation. 
uh, a little bit of corporate traffic, a couple of Pilatus PC-12s come in and out of there, and a, um, a Maryland State Police helicopter unit. Uh, but other than that, it's, as big of an airport as it is, it's, it's fairly quiet. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> so when, when did your aviation adventure begin? How did things get started for you? Uh, well, I always grew up knowing I wanted to fly. And like a lot of teenagers in the 80s, saw Top Gun and was instantly convinced that I wanted to be a uh, Navy fighter pilot. But I had contact lenses, correction for distance viewing. So I was only about 2100 or so at that time without contacts. And at that time, uh, that pretty much precluded you from uh, any sort of military service. So I, I kind of got down in the dumps about that, talked to my high school counselor and the uh, only recommendation they had was to go to a school called Embry-Riddle. So I looked into that, and that was going to be really expensive. But at the same time, I had also found out that uh, in the U.S. Army, uh, they would allow uh, officers to fly with uh, glasses. So I originally set my sights on uh, flying helicopters in the U.S. Army. And I got actually enrolled in ROTC at uh, University of Cincinnati, uh, where I'm originally from and was able to uh, earn a scholarship there uh, and transferred that out to Embry-Riddle. And uh, when I got out to Embry-Riddle, I went there sight unseen. And um, boy, that was a wake-up call <laughs> uh, to a lot of things. The primary thing being because I didn't earn the scholarship there uh, at Embry-Riddle. I had earned it over at University of Cincinnati. They were not going to honor uh, paying for my flight fees, which were quite substantial. And... At the same time, I think my parents finally realized that I was serious about flying. So they offered uh, for me to come back from Embry-Riddle after one semester, and they would uh, help put me through college if I agreed to work uh, at least part-time all through college. And uh, so that's what I ended up doing. I came back from Embry-Riddle, did another year at the uh, University of Cincinnati, and then finished my aviation career with an aviation degree at Ohio State. In fact, I spent most of my time at Ohio State. And so I have a degree from the uh, Arts and Sciences College uh, in aviation. And during that time um, is when I discovered gliders. Mostly I, I found out about it through an article in AOPA magazine. Uh, I had managed to earn my private pilot power license uh, before I started at Ohio State. I, I read an article that mentioned that uh, a lot of glider clubs would allow you to tow for free. And I just thought that was the most amazing thing. Somebody would let you fly an airplane for free. You didn't have to pay money to go do this. Uh, so, you know, as, as a young pilot with only, I don't know, 60, 70 hours or so in my logbook, I looked up the, uh, the closest glider club, which was uh, Caesar Creek Soaring Club uh, in Waynesville, Ohio, and joined the club with really not all that much interest in gliders. I mean, I, I thought they were neat, but at that time I really fully didn't understand what they were capable of. So I joined and I soloed fairly quickly and spent about a year or two um, just flying their club 126 around. And I uh, had a good time doing that. Um, but then as I got signed off to tow and, and would come out there and tow as much as they would let me, I started seeing these guys with these nice shiny white fiberglass ships launch and, and they wouldn't come back for three, four, five hours sometimes. 
uh, sitting around the clubhouse or around the campfire in the evenings, hearing them tell their stories, I, I really got turned on by the uh, cross-country bug. In the meantime, I had earned my CFIs in power, so I also added a CFI glider rating and started teaching in gliders. Right about that time, I was lucky enough to meet a guy who was uh, retired from the Air Force who just started with Delta Airlines in Cincinnati. And he wasn't flying his glider very much, and I made him uh, an offer that uh, I'd take care of the glider and I'd uh, I'd pay him uh, a certain amount per month and uh, you know half the insurance and I'd take care of it and all that uh, if he you know sort of unofficially lease it to me and I I did that. Uh, John Armour was a great boost to my uh, my soaring career. I dearly loved the LS4. I had I had so much fun with that glider. So that sort of launched my uh, cross-country soaring career, and uh, very slowly but surely, the instructing started to go away, and the towing started to die down, although I still do a little bit of both. But primarily since uh, the oh early 2000s or so, I've, I've been mostly doing cross-country work with uh, a couple of years of distractions doing silly things like boats and uh, that kind of stuff. <laughs> After you flew the 126, what was your transition then? Well, I uh, the 126 at the time was the only solo or only single place ship that Caesar Creek had. Um, in my course of, uh, I was a member of Caesar Creek from 1990 until um, not all that long ago, 2015 maybe. I, I, I couldn't even guess um, when I finally sold my shares off to it. But I actively flew there from 1990 until, let's say, uh, oh, 2010 or so. They only had the 126. And uh, besides the 126, though, they had an L23 Blanick for a while. They had still have a Grobe uh, 103. They picked up two ASK21s. So I have a, quite a bit of time in all four of those two place ships. They had an L33 eventually for Solo, which, which I thought was a really nice glider for a metal glider. Um, but was a little on the fragile side. That's sort of what led me into the into the LS4, and I, I really think the LS4 is just a fantastic first glider for somebody. It really has no bad habits, uh, other than maybe a, a slightly weak wheel brake. But it handles beautifully. Its stall characteristics are very benign, and its performance is still is still very very respectable, even up against some of the more modern ships. So you just have to be careful on the rollout, I guess, give yourself plenty of room. Yeah, yeah. You, you basically never counted on the wheel brake working. Uh, <laughs> right. There's little tricks. There, I, I'm sure there's lots of LS4 guys out there that might be listening to this, and there's there's all kinds of tricks and modifications and stuff. But they're heel brakes, too, and so they were they were a little hard to get enough pressure on them to, to really do to do much. Um, but, but honestly, I, I hardly... I can't think of a time where I absolutely needed the wheel brake to, to avoid crashing or, or running into something. The, the dive brakes on the LS4 are extremely effective. So I, I never really ran into that as a, as, a, as a problem. So what are you flying right now? Currently, I'm the uh, proud owner of a DG1001M uh, that I've had for, uh, let's see, two, a little over two years now. Now, is that the two-seater? It's a two-seater self-launcher with a solo, I think it's 67 horsepower, 2625-02i engine in the back. Um, It's basically a derivative of the basic uh, DG-1000. 
And uh, happy to say that that my glider was previously uh, part of the Perlon project. Oh, nice! Uh, it was uh, one of several gliders owned by uh, Dennis Tito that he had, and it has entries in its logbook from uh, California all the way down to Argentina. Oh, nice! Including uh, including several flights. Uh, I think the long uh, several flights over ten hours, and uh, I think the longest flight in the logbook is fourteen and a half. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, my my personal record in a glider uh, was flying the ridges in Pennsylvania uh, was nine and a half hours, uh, and I, I can't imagine going for five more hours. <laughs> right. That's 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 pretty amazing, especially up at uh, you know high altitude and waves. Where were you flying in Pennsylvania when you had that long flight? Those long flights. Uh, that was in the OS4. That was uh, late 90s, and I was flying out of ridge soaring, trying to do a 1,000-kilometer uh, flight uh, down to um, Mountain Grove and back out of uh, out of Tom Knopf's uh, ridge soaring glider. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did not actually make it that day. Uh, although I flew for nine and a half hours, I got stuck at the Altoona Gap for quite a while uh, yeah. on the way down. And... Um, Stuck being, you know, knowing what I know now, uh, stuck's probably not the right word. I think I was just a little too chicken to leave the ridge and uh, and shoot out over it after I watched uh, a friend, uh, Jim Price, and a fellow LS4 push out over the valley and um, immediately got into some very strong sink that was probably wave-induced, and he ended up uh, landing at the uh, famous Ward's oh, farm. Wow. So I, I was determined to uh, to go across that gap at a much higher altitude from him. And so I ended up wasting a good hour, hour and a half trying to get up high enough until uh, some other gliders came along, climbed up in a thermal, punched out in front of the thermal, and went up in wave. And that was my first wave flight, actually, that day as well. Uh, I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty neat. <laughs> This is this is how you really get across these gaps. So uh, yeah, yeah, that was it was it was a very very memorable flight for me. I I still tell stories about my my bag of combos that I had along for a snack, uh, busting open in the cockpit, and later on I was trying to use my P tube and noticed it had backed up, and I looked down in it and. There was a combo stuck in there, <laughs> kind of doing the, the 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 toilet tidy bowl. Uh, <laughs> swirl around down in the funnel that was my that was part oh, of my no. p2 so so you just followed them right up into the wave when you saw them then is that what happened yeah yeah um typically in, in uh that this area of the country um a lot of times you can uh, you can find wave by uh, by climbing up in the early thermals up to a queue building up a little speed under the queue and then punching out in front of the queue and, and pulling up and uh and you can a lot of times get into wave that way with uh, without even seeing any lenticular clouds up above or anything. That's really the next area of my soaring career that I want to explore is is the the wave in the Alleghenies, uh, trying to learn to use that better. I think by now I've become fairly comfortable with ridge flying as, as much as you can be doing low level ridge flying, but uh, yeah, but wave is is something I definitely uh, I want to explore a little more. Hence, being so happy getting a glider that is that is well outfitted for uh, for flying in wave. Yeah. Now you mentioned some of those memories you had, some of those great flights. But do you have any others that stick out? Oh yeah. Um, 
In fact, uh, people often ask me, I'm a, uh, an airline pilot for United Airlines, and people often ask me, what was the scariest time you know, you've ever had flying? And, and honestly, the scariest time I ever had flying was actually flying a glider, flying the LS4 in a contest at uh, Blue Ridge Soaring Society in Newcastle, Virginia, where I'm also a distance member of. And I was uh, flying on a, on a purely ridge mission day, as we call it, during the contest. The, the ridge was kind of weak, but, uh, but it was workable. My glider, that LS4, had had a lot of body work done to it to uh, kind of re- reshape the wings a little, redo the airfoil a little, and uh, wing root, wing fillets. So it was a bit on the heavy side. So I could easily keep up with the 15-meter uh, ships because they didn't have water which is not something a standard class glider can normally do. Those flaps make a huge difference being able to go fast. So I was, I was pushing really hard and was down low on the ridge, crossed uh, the New River Gap very aggressively down low, barely, barely pulled up to get across the gap. And I got to the other side and it was a little weak. Um, and I started to slip down the hill and uh, I was worried uh, that I was going to have to land. And I started looking for somewhere to land as I'm doing these very gentle figure eights back and forth along the ridge, trying to just eke up. And every single figure eight pattern I would do, I would maybe gain 10, 20 feet. And basically in that area there, I didn't see anywhere good to land. I was looking at places to where, where am I not going to kill myself when I crash? Uh, there's a lot of rocks in the fields. The, the hillsides are very steep. So that, that really, uh, that really got my attention. And, uh, but I slowly got up and got out of there, uh, with a lot of patience. And, uh, I, I never take, uh, those gaps for granted like that again, even, even the little ones. But, uh, really, uh, honestly, that's, um, truly scared. Uh, that's, that's the only time I've really truly been scared at a glider. I think a lot of people, would probably agree with me that when you know there might be dangerous things going on that focus your attention but you don't have a lot of time to think about being scared yeah yeah that's that's a good memory and it was a was a good lesson learned what's maybe the coolest or strangest thing you've ever seen from the cockpit oh uh glider flying wise uh i flew once out of uh vita cura chile uh outside of uh, santiago chile where they've had uh, several Grand Prix at. Uh, I did that about 10 years ago, two different flights. And uh, flying in the Andes down there was just absolutely amazing. Uh, I was lucky enough to find a local guy who had a Duo Discus XLT that we took up. Uh, he let me fly from the front seat even. And uh, one day was kind of weak. We just worked some mountain thermals. But the next day, uh, the mountains were we're really working well for ridge and wave and stuff. And we, uh, we attempted to get up to uh, Aconcagua, which is the, uh, the highest peak uh, in the Western Hemisphere. I think we were going through 22,000 feet and we had to stop because there was a solid overcast layer. You couldn't see the top of Aconcagua. We, we had to pull out the dive brakes and dive at about... Oh, it was it was probably a hundred knots to keep from getting sucked up into the cloud. Oh wow! Uh, but that that whole flight, just the steepness of the mountains there. We flew with Andean condors. You could see 
uh, llamas and alpacas up on, on the mountainsides. And, you know, you're, you're flying at, you know, 18, 20,000 feet, uh, looking down these deep, sharp valleys. And, you know, your, your closest airport, um, to go land at is like 40, 50 miles away sometimes. But because you're at 18,000 feet, that's no problem. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's a very different mindset. I'm, I'm mostly used to, uh, 10,000 feet below in thermals, flatland soaring mostly. Although I am starting to do a, a bit more what I'll call low mountain flying, like in the Alleghenies and stuff. But even even in that, when we're when we're flying in ridge lift in the Alleghenies, um, you know, if you're trying to go fast anyway, you're you're not more than a thousand feet usually uh, up above the top of the ridge. So you're maybe two to three thousand feet above the valley floor, if that. So it's it's a completely different experience being up high on the top of the mountains versus down low going fast but and they both have their positive and negatives but but overall that's that's probably my most memorable soaring flight was flying there in chile and now our sky sight soaring safety segment where you can check out sky sight for 17 days absolutely free just by using the coupon code soaring the sky all caps all one word soaring the sky thanks to matt scudder and sky sight and now some soaring safety tips from Daniel Sazen. No matter who you are and what you do, that if you go out and you can always work on getting a little bit better, that I think it's fun to do. Uh, but also the process of doing that keeps you on you know on the trajectory where you are maintaining and honing your pass skills. You don't atrophy, you don't stagnate. I see some people that basically they go out there and they take their private pilot test right and that's as good as they'll ever be and then they actually forget a lot of the stuff that they, they were doing at the time and their and their skills actually uh, get worse and that's disconcerting i mean you know the that's then they're then they're really marginal um but if you continuously work on little things and you know i mean you can continuously work on improving your landings a little bit you know you can continuously get a little bit better on tow you can continuously work on improving your thermaling a little bit and you know and if you do that you'll that that and having that attitude it keeps everything else where it needs to be and then you know and then beyond that that you know and if you pursue new things if you try to expand your horizons then that takes that to another level and finally for folks that already do that you know there are um, you know the things to to think about in terms of safety and is you know maintaining your margins and being honest with yourself. A lot of the you know once you get outside of errors associated with basic airmanship, you know, and basic judgment that just go back to basic training. That a lot of the ways that the more experienced pilots get hurt or get killed is you know is when they have they make some significant errors in decision making which you know that if you've been around the sport long enough you'll you'll know you'll have a couple examples that come to mind where you were you were guilty of i certainly have numerous ones i can i can cite on my own part and and the thing there is to really realize you know the sport is really unforgiving and you know that you really have to work on having a kind of a really good sense as to what you know what you're going to do and how you're going to do it at the various times and you know and respecting that you know because uh, the moment that you start overstepping those bounds 
the you know you go one step further and your risk level goes up a little bit but you go one two three or four steps further and your risk level goes up exponentially and the nature of the sport is the way it ends up working out is that you end up you know you're you're it's everything works until it doesn't there's just very little middle ground and psychologically speaking that is really 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 difficult for us to manage like you know one of the, the examples i really like to cite or to like to kind of encourage people to visualize is you can watch someone coming into land right and you watch the you know and you watch them on base leg and they're a little low they're a little slow and then they go and you know, they have a little bit of spoilers out, and they and they start turning from base to final at 150 feet, and they skid through the turn a little bit, a little bit slow, and then they level out and they land. You know, and they and you get over to them, and they get and get out of the glider. And the thing is, is when they did that in relation to someone else who made a very nice crisp, you know, pattern where it's made nice turns, and they turned final, you know, base to final at 250 feet, and you know, nice and controlled, perfectly coordinated. The risk level of the first pilot was, I don't know, probably you know, a hundred million times greater than the guy that just did the, you know, the nicely controlled pattern and the risk, you know, and the likelihood of the guy that, you know, that ended up doing that, that risky pattern of stalling out and spinning. Well, you know, maybe it was one in a hundred, maybe it was one in a thousand, maybe it was one in 10,000, but the proportion differences are astronomical between the two of them. But yet the pilot that went and did the low pattern and the low energy pattern, you know, the instructor starts telling them what, you know, why'd you do that? And you were, you know, you got yourself into serious trouble, but oftentimes they, they, they don't realize how close to the edge they were, you know, and you go off and you thermal, right. In your, I'd say, I don't know, a thousand feet or whatever your lowest margin is, you know, for some people, maybe it's 500 feet and you're going, you thermal and you feel okay. You feel in control, but you know, you realize that you go and you tap that inside rudder a half an inch and the glider's going to depart on you and you're, you're in deep trouble. And so a lot of the, the risk at a higher level for folks is understanding just how unforgiving the sport is and, and, and working out your margins, you know, and, you know, there's a lot of discussion as to what that is and what they ought to be. And, you know, you can talk it over with people that your instructors, or you can think, you know, can mull it over yourself. And, you know, that's a personal choice to an extent, but whatever that is, you know, it's to, it's to really respect that from a safety perspective is, you know, is to keep your eyes wide open and think through your margins and stick to them. If you'd like to hear Daniel Sazen's Soaring Adventure, check out episode 58. Hi, it's Natalie Flygirl Kelly. And Fly Alyssa. We are female pilots, aviation lovers, and hosts of the podcast, Cockpits and Cocktails. We use this podcast as a way of sharing our journeys in aviation and allowing other females in aviation to share their amazing, inspiring stories as well. Please give us a listen and join us for this fun, informative podcast with adventure and humor weaved in. Blue skies. Cheers. Yeah, I was going to ask you about what kind of birds you soared with, but obviously the condor. I mean, that, that had been pretty amazing. Oh, all kinds of things. Uh, so, yeah, top, top of the list would be an Andean condor, several actually, uh, down there. Just just the size of those things. I mean, you'd, some, I swear some of them looked as big as oh. the 126. Well. <laughs> um, they, they were just. Just huge. Um, it, it's just so impressive to see them fly. And they, you know, sometimes we'd go into a thermal with them, and sometimes we'd be in a thermal, and a couple would come and join us. They weren't aggressive at all? No, not at all. No, very peaceful. Oh, very, you know, did, didn't even really give you a side look. I have gotten some dirty looks from bald eagles before. <laughs> so uh, I, I did a lot of flying um, between uh, 2009 and Oh, roughly 2018, 
uh, down in Florida out of uh, Seminole Lake Glider Port. I was in uh, a glider consortium down there that owned three gliders, uh, a DG-800, an LS-8, and a DG-1000 turbo. My favorite thing about flying in Florida was all the different birds you could fly with. I, I can remember being in thermals sometimes with probably was a dozen bald eagles oh in the springtime there with, when they're uh, mating or starting to migrate back north. The, the birds that you fly with, we, we kind of had a joke flying down there. If, if it's a good thermal in Florida, there's a bird in it. And, and if, if you're if you in what you think is a good thermal, keep looking for birds because he's probably in the better one. Yeah, absolutely. So, but I, I, I will caveat that and say um, never risk uh, a land out or uh, a competition on following a turkey vulture uh, or a turkey buzzard, depending on how, how what part of the country you're from. Uh, those things seem to be able to stay and lift in, in a rabbit part. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I think they're just up there playing around, trying to lure glider pilots to join them when they're, they're not really flying at anything. So I, I never try and follow a turkey. Black vultures, yes, but turkey vultures, no. Do you use a floorm in your glider? I do. I have a, a power floorm core um, built in that uh, displays on my uh, LX9000 that I have built in. And I'm, I'm, I'm fairly impressed with it, actually. I, I've, I've used uh, a portable floorm before that I actually rented through the SSA rental program when I flew in um, the uh, Uvalde pre-Worlds out uh, in, back in uh, 2011, that was. I took the DG1000 uh, Turbo from Seminole Lake out there and uh, flew in that with my wife at the time and actually a, a visitor from uh, Chile that had put me in touch with a guy that I had that I had flown the uh, Duo Discus with. And, uh, and my father-in-law, I, I split the flying between uh, three different uh, co-pilots through that contest. Oh, very nice. And that, that, was, that was quite a challenge. I was only, uh, at that time, 20-meter uh, gliders were not in the world, so they didn't have a 20-meter class. So I ended up having to enter in uh, open class. So I was in competition against guys with uh, ASH 25s, and ASW-22s, and Nimbus 4s. But I'm, I'm proud to say I did not come in last. So I finished every day, had, had no landouts. And uh, that actually, I think, was up until recently my second longest glider flight. Uh, I, we had a contest day there that lasted uh, seven, maybe seven and a half hours. I'd have to go back and look that up. So. Well, you know, that was my next question. I was going to ask you if you've ever landed out. Oh, yes. <laughs> in fact, on my SSA registration, they ask, uh, how many uh, off-field landings, and uh, my response is too many. Uh, <laughs> okay, so, so maybe the question I should ask you is, out of all those off-field landings, what was maybe one that sticks out that really taught you a lot? Well, the most recent one that comes is, oh, it was probably my third or fourth flight in the, uh, in the 1001M. It'll be coming up on two falls ago now. I had just gotten a glider, was really excited to fly it, was still figuring out, you know, every glider has its unique nooks and crannies and stuff. And more and more these days, it's, it's not so much flying the glider that's difficult, it's figuring out how to work all the avionics, you know, all these moving maps and all these different vario settings, and switching frequencies on the radio and all that. So, I, But I had entered it in the um, Region 4 North Contest at Fairfield, Pennsylvania 
home of Mid-Atlantic Soaring, which I'm also currently a member at, although I don't fly there very often now because I have a hangar out at Cumberland. But um, uh, it was the first contest day and went out on course, and it was a really weak day. I, I got off a tow. I'll, I'll always take a tow, even though I can self-launch. Um, if, if I can get a tow, I'll take a right. tow just to save the wear and tear on the motor. And um, while I, I, I do not think self-launchers are inherently dangerous, I, I trust the engine in the tow plane more than I trust the engine in, in my motor glider. And we can talk about that topic maybe a little later on. So I took the tow, I got off the tow, I fired up the motor just to get an engine log run on my flight recorder for the score and shut it down and everything was fine, went out on course. And uh, it was a pretty weak day, but I got about you know, maybe halfway through the course and was just kept sinking lower and lower. I wasn't really getting much above two, maybe 3,000 feet AGL for most of the flight. Uh, it, was, it was short glides followed by slow, weak thermal. And I, I had a good field picked out that I, I thought looked really nice. It looked like uh, a freshly cut uh, hay field or something uh, leading to a house. And in that area of the country, there was there were several places you know that I, that I could have chosen to land, but this one looked pretty good. And sort of the rule with uh, motor gliders is you don't uh, you don't put up the engine unless you have a guaranteed place to land. Uh, when I eventually gave up and, and it got to the point of uh, approaching my personal limit. Uh, for putting up the motor, which is uh, a thousand feet for me, and depending on your system and your glider, that's completely you know that, that's a whole other subject as well on motor gliders. But I put the motor up and uh, it started, but it wouldn't accelerate. It was just kind of coughing and sputtering. Fortunately, with me, the system on the uh, the DG system is fairly automatic, and I had enough time and altitude and and in the perfect position to attempt a second start. So I put the motor away, put it back up. Uh, tried to start it again. The same thing happened. I said, okay, that's it. I put the motor away and it went away and I focused on the landing. Uh, had, had the gear down, spoilers out, had my speed on. It had some kind of high trees on one end and um, I made sure. The, the field looked a little short, but it shouldn't have been a problem. And uh, came in and touched down fairly early in the field. And uh, I actually thought, Oh wow! Uh, I should um, I should close the die brakes and, and roll a little farther because I'm I'm going to end up sitting out here in the, in the middle of this field and I want to uh, I want to roll to the end to make the uh, the ground retrieve uh, <laughs> a bit easier. And that was that was my first mistake. I let it roll. As I was rolling, uh, thinking, okay, it's time to uh, put on the brakes and start to slow down. And as I did that, uh, nothing happened. On my previous, on the previous uh, DG1000 landing on grass, you could pull on the dive brake handle uh, hard enough to activate the brake that, that you could actually tip it all the way up onto its nose. And I wasn't getting any of that on this. So um, I ended up, and as, as I was getting closer to the end of the field, I noticed that there was a, uh, a water spigot sticking up out a little ways from the end of the grass uh, that I had to try and pick my wing up and, and go over the water spigot. So I sort of used the aileron and picked the left wing up and uh, picking the left wing up to go over a spigot turned me a little bit to the right. And with the combination of no braking uh, at, a, at a fairly slow speed, I ended up contacting right outboard at the, uh, the wingtip wing juncture, uh, a tree 
that pivoted me uh, harder around to or to the right, which then put the left wing tip into the tree. So on my first outlanding and only outlanding in that glider so far, I ended up damaging it. So I learned a few lessons from that. Number one, um, and Tom Knopf told me this a long time ago, and I should have listened to him more. When you land out on a field, land and stop as soon as you can. You just don't know what is out there in that field, whether it's gopher holes, rocks, boulders. Uh, if I would have put on the brake earlier, I would have noticed that I wasn't stopping. It turns out I wasn't stopping because it had rained heavily there just a little while earlier. And the fresh cut grass was like, I, I went back and walked the field and the fresh cut grass was like ice. I just was getting no traction. So uh, I have since discovered that, that I, yes, I indeed can put this glider on the nose if I, if I pull hard enough on the brake. But it's just, the brake locked up. There was no anti-skid, the brake locked up, and I just dug a hole as I was sliding through mud. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a lot of damage to my pride. But so I should have I stopped earlier, even before that. If I had to do all this over again, if I had that Nova glider to me, um, I would have done a few more flights in it before entering in a contest and having the added pressure of trying to go out and fly cross country with a glider that I did not know intimately well. And hindsight being 2020, uh, there's a possibility if I would have realized it earlier and planned for it that uh, I could have uh, put the nose forward and uh, tried to do some sort of ground loop. But after much time of uh, repair work and excellent, uh, excellent, excellent repair work done by uh, Mike Robeson, I got the glider back and it's flying great. The insurance company, I use a Femco, highly recommend them. Uh, they were great about the whole process. So, um, yeah, if you land out, stop early. Well, good. You know, lesson, lesson learned and you're good. I know you're doing some stuff to, to help the soaring world out. Well, one big one, you're an instructor, so thank you for that. But I know you're doing some other stuff with the juniors. Can you tell me about that? You know, a lot of people say if you really want to learn something, um, teach it. And so I really wanted to get better at cross-country soaring and racing in particular. Uh, so I've kind of taken the mindset that I, I'm very happy owning a two-place glider, even though... Um, a significant amount of time I, I end up flying by myself. So I'm, I'm more interested in doing the, um, the cross-country type of advanced instruction uh, to students than I am doing the basics these days. And this year, in fact, uh, right now, in fact, uh, would be the middle of the, uh, was supposed to be the junior team camp at uh, Caesar Creek this year where I had offered to uh, bring my glider along and happily ride in the back seat and see how the junior team members do it and uh, help out any way I could with them. Uh, but unfortunately, due to COVID, um, that, that all got canceled this year. The Caesar Creek camp is still going on, by the way, but uh, but I think it's mostly with just uh, Caesar Creek club members. I'm not too sure anybody from out of town is coming in. But I'm still happy to do that. And uh, I, I frequently fly contests. Um, in fact, I've only ever flown a contest in a two-place glider with two pilots. I, I really, really enjoy the camaraderie of doing that. I think it's a huge asset in, uh, especially if you fly with another pilot that's of a somewhat similar level to you, even if they are of a different mindset, bouncing ideas back and forth, 
I think in task planning and, and strategizing, um, it's a great thing to do. I, I just, I, I wholeheartedly enjoy it. And, uh, I've had a lot of fun doing it, to, you know, depending on the comfort level of the guy, of the people that I fly with. Sometimes we'll even, uh, we all, we kind of make it a little competition between us. You know, I'll do a, um, a, a glide and a climb. And then the next guy will do a glide and a climb. And uh, we sort of end up having a, a little race between ourselves to see who can do better on this glide and climb than the other guy. So so that, that kind of spurs some, uh, it, it helps us go faster and it spurs some friendly uh, uh, ribbing and joking. And uh, it just adds another dimension of fun to the flight. It's always nice to fly with somebody else, share the experience. Yeah, I mean, the, the way most people learn to go cross country uh, at, at most places is is they buy their own glider and they follow somebody else around in another glider of similar performance. And while that does work, it's it's a very steep learning curve. It's it's hard to really develop a lot of the ideas um, without being able to talk to somebody one on one about how you're doing it. Now I understand in Europe and Australia, New Zealand. South Africa, you know, there's there's much better instruction on cross country flying than we have, and, and coaching and all that. Uh, I'd, I'd really like to see that uh, that change in the U.S. Um, I don't know when it will or if it would, but uh, but it'd be a great thing to see. Absolutely, I mean, they are much further ahead. That's for sure. Soaring in general is so much more popular overseas than it is here. Yeah. Yeah, and and continues to to seem to be that way. I've I've now been in soaring, you know, uh, oh, this is what thirty years now, and um, you know, from the very beginning, I, I heard heard the old timers saying, "Oh, soaring is dying, and it's going to go away." And thirty years later, I, I'm I'm not even quite fifty yet, but uh, I'm still hearing people say. And I'm starting to be one of them, <laughs> saying soaring's, soaring's dying and it's going to go away. And, uh, you know, I, I hope it doesn't. Uh, I, I truly love the sport. I wish it was much more accessible to the masses. Um, I, I've had all kinds of ideas for that over the years. And some have worked and some haven't. And, and I, I don't have a magic bullet for any of it. So... I, I hope it's still I hope it's still around when, when I'm I truly am an old timer. You know, that's one of the things that motivated me to do a podcast about soaring is there wasn't any out there and I, I was I couldn't believe how overseas they it was so popular and here in the US it just you know, I barely had heard about it before I got into soaring and I was like, This is this is kinda crazy. Yeah. Hopefully the podcast is helping with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and hopefully some of uh, uh, European listeners and stuff out there uh, have enough uh, interest or or think that there's a fertile market over here to come over and do some uh, coaching here, professional coaching here in the U.S. and uh, cross-country oh, instruction. So, yeah, that would be a great idea. Or, or Australia, New Zealand. I'm I'm, I'm no xenophobe. They can come from anywhere. Do you have anyone you'd like to give a shout out to that has been? a big help in your soaring and made a big impression on you? Oh, there's, there's, there's been so many. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know where to start really early, early on in my soaring career. Uh, Larry Kirkbride, uh, was the instructor who helped me get my, uh, glider instructor rating. He turned me on to, uh, Derek Piggott, 
and reading Derek Piggott's books. And I actually got the pleasure of meeting uh, Derek Piggott uh, once and, and talking with him. Uh, what, what an amazing gentleman he was. But uh, Larry Kirkbride was, was a very good inspiration, uh, not only as a glider pilot, which, by the way, he also had an LS4 and, uh, and really liked it. Now he's moved up to an ASH 26E, but um, uh, he, he was a good mentor. He was a very calm, cool, collected instructor. Uh, he never uh, he never got angry. He, he never shouted. Uh, he, he could get a little stern, but... Uh, but then he usually followed it up with a little bit of a joke or, or a ribbing. So uh, Larry was a big influence. Uh, there was a, you know, I'm hoping not to forget anybody, but all, all of the guys at Caesar Creek that uh, that helped me learn to go cross country, um, John Murray, John Lubon, Greg Crook, uh, Mark Connor, among, among several others. They were always real good mentors in, in the days of, Follow me. I'll, I'll show you how to do it. And uh, uh, several times, I, I can remember them, them, you know, playing uh, us playing follow the leader, and, and them pulling out their spoilers and coming down and helping me center the thermal and, and get back up and get running. Uh, Jim Price uh, was a good friend uh, that also had an LS4, and we sort of came up together and had a lot of fun flying together. Was partners in the in the glider consortium down at uh, Seminole for a little while. And that whole consortium, the, the group at, uh, at Seminole, called, uh, it's called DG Soaring LLC. And it's a partnership that I think more places in the U.S. should consider uh, setting up. And that we had uh, 12 guys in uh, three gliders, uh, all assembled in a hangar. You just signed up in a scheduling book and flew it on the days you wanted. Uh, but that, that partnership group allowed me to get into... Three different gliders, all top quality, good, good gliders for a fraction of the price that it would have cost me to own one on my own. You know, there was still insurance and, and hangar rent and maintenance to be paid every year, but it's uh, it's a fraction of um, of what you'd pay on your own. The glider syndicate group, uh, as I understand, is also more popular overseas, and and so the members that were all in in that group, Rich Owen. Kenyut Kinsley was uh, the owner of, of Seminole Lake Glider Port at the time. He helped me get into that. Uh, those guys were, were a big help, help in my swimming career as well. There, there's there's so many. I, I, I couldn't even imagine. I, I've had so many great mentors at glider contests. Hank, Hank Nixon comes to mind. Uncle Hank, as he's known, uh, has always been a, a great guy to come to for advice. And, you know, I, I can't, probably me like many others, can't tell you how many times that I have chased uh, Kilo Sierra, Carl Stradick around, trying to see the magic of how he does it. I, I try and follow uh, Sierra Mike, John Seymour around, but I can never seem to hold on to him for very long. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, there's just there's just so many great people in soaring. I I, I could go on and on without for, for many many hours. You know, I guess the last person I'd say was such a big influence on my soaring career wasn't even a pilot, and that was uh, Charlie Spratt. He was such a pivotal part of the glider racing scene throughout the uh, 80s, 90s, 2000s, up until he passed away uh, way too early. Charlie was just such a great contest director, manager, overall great, fun, interesting human being. But uh, 
there'll never be another, but Soaring could, could use uh, more Charlie Sprats. If someone were to ask you how they could be a better and safer pilot, what would be your answer for that? Kind of a combination of things, really. I definitely think it's good for people to fly with as many different instructors as is reasonable. Uh, I think different instructors often, uh, every instructor has a little bit different angle on things. And if you think you're doing something wrong or you're having problems with something in soaring, uh, on, on any level, whether that's um, pre-solo, solo, after license, early cross-country, even even if you're a top-level racing pilot. Try going on a flight with an instructor and talking about the particular issue and, and having them just sit back and watch and maybe give you a second opinion uh, about how you're doing things. If it's a particular situation on safety, boy, I'd have to say that you just have to remember that this is a sport for fun. We're not getting paid for any of this. As uh, John Murray once told me, uh, gliders break easy, but they fix hard. Don't, don't take stupid risks if you still want to fly your glider again tomorrow. At the very least, you only break your glider. You're going to be without flying for a while. And if you do worse and break yourself, Unfortunately, um, because Soaring is such a small community, I, I'm familiar with uh, more than I care to want, more than I'm happy to admit of glider pilots I've known that have passed away through, through glider accidents. But the Soaring Safety Foundation always has great materials out. The Soaring Convention always has great safety programs. Um, you know, for the past 10 years, 15 years or so, I've sort of been focused around motor gliders or at least gliders with some sort of motor. Dave Nadler's presentation on motor gliders at the SSA convention this year was, was really good. He's definitely got some interesting stories about all kinds of things. Read all you can. Soaring Magazine, Derek Pickett books, uh, Bob Wander's got great books. It, it, it's sort of, you have to tailor the safety thing sort of to the level of the glider pilot that, that you're talking to. Well, that's some great advice. Thanks, Rob. And thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks for taking your time to share your story. You're welcome. I'm, uh, I guess you could say, a multi-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, and I hope to see you soon out at the glider board there. I'm not far from you, so um, you're hanging out at, at a, our club right now. So that, that's very cool. So I'm looking forward to maybe getting in the air with you. COVID times, we can if you can find a comfy mask and it's not too hot out, uh, we can we can certainly work that out. All right, I'll be there. Thanks, Rob. All right, all right, thanks, Chuck. And now Scott Manley joins us for our tips and techniques segment, where he talks to us about the advantages of VR in soaring. Well, um, human beings are uh, visual learners. Um, Eighty percent of the sensory input that your brain uses to get you through a day uh, comes in through your eyes. And so um, you're, you're a very sensory, a, a very visual um, animal. And so um, the more realistic that, that visual sensation can be, the, the, more, the less your brain can tell it from reality. So, uh, yeah, the VR headset does a, does a really nice job of just immersing you uh, much more than a monitor can. Um, it, just, it just feels much more real. It's, it's, uh, it's an amazing technology. That said, from an educational perspective, at least with my experience so far, there's only a couple things that that VR will do for a student. Certain aspects of training where it's where it's dramatic or it's a dramatic improvement over just using a monitor. 
Because what I will tell people is because you are a visual learner, even if you're sitting in front of a 15-inch monitor, um, your brain literally disappears into the monitor. It, it becomes almost oblivious to things going around it. People, if, you're, if you were flying in Condor looking at a monitor and your brain was engaged with that flight, someone could walk by right past you. And you would not notice them because your that isn't your your brain has gone someplace else. I think one of the powers of VR is that it literally eliminates all of that as well. Thank you, Scott. If you'd like to hear more about flight training and the advantages of, of VR and Condor, you can check out episode 45. And speaking of Condor, we are going to have some stuff going on next episode. We'll tell you more about that with Condor. Thank you for joining us for another soaring adventure and hearing some great advice from pilots all over the globe. Don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcast. It does help the podcast and the soaring community grow. Don't forget to hit me up with an email, chuck at soaringthesky.com. We want to see those great picks and get you entered for that Condor keypad from Cumulus Soaring. Also, we want to hear from you or maybe someone at the glider port that you fly with. We want to hear their stories, and we like to play right here on Soaring the Sky. So get that to us as well, all at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time right here on Soaring the Sky. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky.